Section 3 of A Journey Round My Room by Xavier de Maistre, translated by Henry Atwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6. For Metaphysicians. This chapter is for metaphysicians, and for metaphysicians only. It will throw a great light upon man's nature. It is the prism with which to analyse and decompose the human faculties, by separating the animal force from the pure rays of intellect. It would be impossible for me to explain how I came to burn my fingers at the very onset of my journey without expounding to my reader my system of the soul and the animal. And besides, this metaphysical discovery has so great an influence on my thoughts and actions that it would be very difficult to understand this book if I did not begin by giving the key to its meaning. Various observations have enabled me to perceive that man is made up of a soul and an animal. These two beings are quite distinct, but they are so dovetailed one into the other, or upon the other, that the soul must, if we would make the distinction between them, possess a certain superiority over the animal. I have it from an old professor, and this is as long ago as I can remember, that Plato used to call the matter the other. This is all very well but I prefer giving this name par excellence to the animal which is joined to our soul. This substance it is which is really the other, and which plays such strange tricks upon us. It is easy enough to see, in a general sort of way, that man is twofold. But this, they say, is because he is made up of body and soul, and they accuse the body of I don't know how many things, and very inconsistently seeing that it can neither feel nor think. It is upon the animal that the blame should fall, upon that sensitive being which, while it is perfectly distinct from the soul, is a real individual, enjoying a separate existence, with its own tastes, inclinations and will, and which only ranks higher than other animals, because it is better educated than they, and is provided with more perfect organs. Ladies and gentlemen, be as proud of your intellect as you please, but be very suspicious of the other, especially when you are together. I have experimented, I know not how oft, upon the union of these two heterogeneous creatures. I have, for instance, clearly ascertained that the soul can make herself obeyed by the animal, and that, by way of retaliation, the animal makes the soul act contrary to its own inclination. The one as a rule, has the legislative, the other the executive power, but these two are often at variance. The great business of a man of genius is to train his animal well, in order that it may go alone, while the soul, delivered from this troublesome companion, can raise herself to the skies. But this requires illustration. When, sir, you are reading a book, and an agreeable idea suddenly enters your imagination, your soul attaches herself to the new idea at once, and forgets the book, while your eyes follow mechanically the words and lines. You get through the page without understanding it, and without remembering what you have read. Now this is because your soul, having ordered her companion to read to her, gave no warning of the short absence she contemplated, so that the other went on reading what the soul no longer attended to. Chapter 7 the soul. Is not this clear to you? Let us illustrate it further. 
One day last summer, at an appointed hour, I went wending my way to court. I had been sketching all day, and my soul, choosing to meditate upon painting, left the duty of taking me to the king's palace to the animal. How sublime, thought my soul, is the painter's art. Happy is he who is touched by the aspect of nature and does not depend upon his pictures for a livelihood, who does not paint solely as a pastime, but struck with the majesty of a beautiful form and the wonderful way in which the light with its thousand tints play upon the human face, strives to imitate in his works the wonderful effects of nature. Happy, too, is the painter who is led by love of landscape into solitary paths, and who can make his canvas breathe the feeling of sadness with which he is inspired by a gloomy wood or a desert plain. His productions imitate and reproduce nature. He creates new seas and dark caverns into which the sun has never peered. At his command, coppices of evergreen spring into life, and the blue of heaven is reflected in his pictures. He darkens the air, and we hear the roar of the storm. At another time, he presents to the eye of the wandering beholder the delightful plains of the ancient Sicily. Startled nymphs flee the pursuit of a satyr through the bending reeds. Temples of stately architecture raise their grand fronts above the sacred forest that surrounds them. Imagination loses itself among the still paths of this ideal country. Bluish backgrounds blend with the sky, and the whole landscape, reproduced in the waters of a tranquil river, forms a scene that no tongue can describe. While my soul was thus reflecting, the other went its way, heaven knows whither. Instead of going to court, according to orders, it took such a turn to the left that my soul just caught it up at Madame de Hocassol's door, a full half a mile from the Palais Royal. Now I leave to the reader to fancy what might have been the consequence had the truant visited so beautiful a lady alone. Chapter 8 The Animal If it is both useful and agreeable to have a soul so disengaged from matter that we can let it travel alone whenever we please, this has also its disadvantages. Through this, for instance, I got the burn I spoke of a few chapters back. I generally leave my animal to prepare my breakfast. Its care is to slice and toast the bread. My coffee it makes admirably, and helps itself thereto without my soul concerning itself in the transaction. But this is a very rare and nice performance to execute, for though it is easy enough while busied in a mechanical operation, to think of something quite different it is extremely difficult, so to speak, to watch oneself work, or, if I express myself systematically, to employ one's soul to examine the animal's progress, and to watch its work without partaking in it. This is the most extraordinary metaphysical feat a man can execute. I had rested my tongs on the embers to toast my bread, and some little time afterwards, while my soul was travelling, a burning stick fell on the hearth, my poor animal seized the tongs, and I burned my fingers. Chapter 9. Philosophy I hope I have sufficiently developed my ideas in the foregoing chapters to furnish you, good reader, with matter for thought, 
and to enable you to make discoveries along the brilliant career before you. You cannot be other than highly satisfied with yourself if you succeed in the long run in making your soul travel alone. The pleasure afforded by this power will amply counterbalance any inconvenience that may arise from it. What more flattering delight is there than being able thus to expand one's existence, to occupy at once earth and heaven, to double, so to speak, one's being? Is it not man's eternal, insatiable desire to augment his strength and his faculties, to be where he is not, to recall the past and live in the future? He would fain command armies, preside over learned societies, and be the idol of the fair. And, if he attains all this, then he regrets the tranquillity of a rural life, and envies the shepherd's cot. His plans, his hopes, are constantly foiled by the ills that flesh is heir to. He can find happiness nowhere, but a quarter of an hour's journey with me will show him the way to it. Ugh! Why does he not leave to the other those caking cares and that tormenting ambition? Come, my poor friend, make but an effort to burst from thy prison, and from the height of heaven, whither I am about to lead thee, from the midst of the celestial shades, from the Empyrean itself, behold thy animal run along the road to fortune and honour. See with what gravity it walks among men. The crowd falls back with respect, and believe me, none will remark that it is alone. The people among whom it walks care very little whether it has a soul or not, whether it thinks or not. A thousand sentimental women will fall desperately in love with it without discovering the defect. It may even raise itself without thy soul's help to the highest favour and fortune. Nay, I should not be astonished if, on thy return from the Imperium, thy soul, on getting home, were to find itself in the animal of a noble lord. End of section 3